0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Sigmund Freud didn't really think you existed. Freud is probably best known as the founder of psychoanalysis, um, which, unlike psychology or um, um, uh, clinical psychology, really questions the subject, really questions this idea that there is an immutable subject, that you are right there where you sit, that there is a certain kind of immutable identity or interiority to you. Um, uh, it's, it, it breaks the subject apart um, and shows then how desire uh, or aspiration, etc., are part of a quest. All we are is the quest for that kind of unity. My name is George Paul Mayo, and I'm uh, Associate Professor of Anthropology and African American Studies at Harvard University. One of Freud's main interests was sex,
1: specifically how human sexuality develops. The common sense view before Freud was that sexuality was a matter of nature, that it was determined on a biological level. But in his 1905 text, Three Essays on the Theory of Sexuality, Freud proposed that when it comes to our sexual desires, nurture matters too.
0: One thing that strikes me as so resonant in um, Freud's three essays is this persistent questioning of the sexual. Is there something that that can be called sexual? Is there some sort of an essence, whether in the subject, in our relations, in our desires, that is distinctly sexual? Or is the sexual but a label for for something that is much more amorphous, much more ambivalent, uh, not readily um, uh, able to, to pin down, something that is not readily identifiable, if you will. Freud looked at childhood to understand how sexuality develops. Freud said that what we would discover if we pay careful attention at how infant sexuality is continuous um, or or central to the production of who we are as sexual subjects in adult life, is that instinct, or what we call the drive, is always already composite. That is, there is no such thing as one instinct, i.e., you know... um, So-and-so is a heterosexual, I'm a homosexual, so-and-so is a bisexual. There's always a certain kind of multiplicity to it. That composite instinct never goes away. Welcome to Writ Large,
1: a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor George Paul Mayhew, to discuss Sigmund Freud's
0: three essays on the theory of sexuality. Now, he was born in um, 1856 in Freiburg, uh, which was then part of the Austrian Empire. When Freud was young, his family moved to Vienna. He studied uh, medicine and neurology at the University of Vienna. Freud lived in
1: Vienna for most of his adult life. In 1886, he established his clinical practice, where he pioneered a new theory and therapy he called psychoanalysis. The goal of psychoanalysis is to treat mental health disorders by looking at the intersection of the conscious and unconscious mind. Through his clinical practice, Freud established theories on how the human psyche develops and behaves. He wrote many books and essays where he expanded on these theories. Some of his most famous works include The Interpretation of Dreams, The Psychology of Everyday Life, Civilization and Its Discontents, which we covered in another episode, and three essays on the theory of sexuality.
0: And his work uh, covered a very wide range of topics. Probably the best known among these topics are his theorizations of the unconscious, uh, repression, um, and sexuality, uh, especially the notion of the libido um, that he developed in the three essays.
1: How did people think about sex before Freud's more i don't know is, is it fair to call it a medical kind of
0: examination I do think that the the patriarchal family heterosexual family um does become an important um normative ideal uh, in this in this context at the same time if one were to tap into the archives of city life, let's say in Vienna or Berlin or London uh, at that time, I'm sure one finds a very rich kind of, um, a set of sexual landscapes, if you wish, um, with, you know, certain areas in which prostitution takes place, certain brothels in which, you know, same-sex relations are possible, um, in which various forms of transgender subjectivity uh, become Possible, um, even if not um, necessarily legitimate, uh, under a certain kind of normative order. Doctors and researchers
1: were curious as to how these non-normative sexualities and genders developed. As they began to study sexuality and gender, sexology and the sexual sciences took root.
0: You see the sexual science that, that um, um, became so prominent in the second half of the 19th century, itself tried to make sense of this growing multiplicity, compli- complexity, uh, to categorize it, to, to get to its interiority. Just what's the seed of truth be beyond the, behind the prostitute, behind the homosexual, you know? Um, um, how can we pin that down? Many of these early sexologists believed that there
1: was some biological element that predisposed a person to become homosexual or transgender or a prostitute. Researchers did things like measuring subjects as skulls to try and find evidence of this biological link. This was the time of Darwin, after all. In 1859, just a few years after Freud was born, Charles Darwin published The Origin of Species, which revolutionized many scientific fields, which turned anew to biology to prove various hypotheses. But Freud questioned this growing embrace of
0: biological reductionism. He really questions, for example, the kind of um, uh, biological origin of sexual instinct. Is, is it all hereditary? Is it all innate? Um, or are we dealing with something else? Are we dealing perhaps with the early impressions of our childhood um, that are probably much more important than what's passed down to us um, uh, heredi- hereditarily? Instead of looking for biological and hereditary traits that determine sexuality,
1: Freud looked at how the development of the human psyche in childhood impacts sexuality. He shared his theories in three essays on the theory of sexuality, originally published in 1905 and again in 1915. Tell us about uh, the the essays themselves um, and and you know what what it's what it's saying, what
0: it's arguing, and how it how it makes those arguments indeed there are three uh three essays um one the first is um dealing with um with freud calls um sexual aberrations um the second with infantile sexuality and the third with the kind of transformations of sexuality that come with um puberty freud spends much time trying to debunk ideas about sexual pathology, um, of degeneracy and uh, innateness of particular kinds of tendencies, orientations and desires that were very common at that time. A key intervention um, happens already in the first pages of the book uh, where he distinguishes, uh, for example, between sexual instinct and the sexual object. Now, instinct is... um, what we would call now probably um, a drive, actually translated from the German sexualtrieb. Uh, Trieb comes from the verb treiben, which is uh, driving. You know, um, uh, it's a drive. Um, It was translated into English, though, as um, sexual instinct. Uh, And the other, the sexual object is, Freud says, um, the person from whom sexual attraction proceeds. In other words, who you're interested in. And this distinction, I think, is central, for it dissociates who one is attracted to from the drive itself. Freud says the instinct, the drive, actually has nothing to do with the object. The object comes later. In other words, Freud separates the desire itself
1: from what it is attracted to. He calls the desire the sexual drive, or libido. We all have that sexual drive, Freud says, but the way it develops
0: depends on a person's childhood development. So this is already a way to, I would say, the way I read it, depathologize, to pull apart this idea that there are such things as immutable types. By linking sexuality
1: to childhood development, Freud shows that sexual drive is flexible. It's not entirely biological, and it's not entirely
0: social. It's in between. But this kind of like ind- undecidability, this kind of in-betweenness, I think is a really important, uh, important thing. Um, at the same time that he's already trying to remove it uh, uh, at least a little bit from a uh, biology um, uh, compared to the scholars who have written about it uh, previously. And one way in which he did that uh, was, um, and this I think is perhaps another major um, intervention of the book, Is to pay close attention to infant um, uh, sexuality. Um, And what he does do here is to question the seeming separation between infancy and then puberty in sexual life. He says that um, for the most part, um, infancy is not recognized as, uh, uh, was not recognized at that point um, as uh, part of sexual development and it's puberty where the advent of our uh, sexual being is, whatever that thing is. Well, he says, no, actually, there are lots of continuities and uh, careful attention to what's happening in infancy uh, is, is, is quite central here. Freud argues that as we grow up, we pass
1: through five stages of development. In each stage, our innate sexual drive, our libido, focuses on a different erogenous zone. During these developmental stages, the libido is not yet experienced as an adult sexual desire. It's not driven by the instinctual desire to reproduce. It's more like an energy that focuses on the development of certain parts of one's body and mind. According to Freud's theory, if we pass through each stage of development without any trauma, we will grow up to be balanced, mentally healthy individuals. If a child has a traumatic experience during one of these stages, it can impact their psychological development and can be expressed later in life through various personality traits, neuroses, dependencies, depression, and addictions.
0: One starts with the oral stage, during which, you know, the breast of the mother, which was used for a certain kind of almost holistic fulfillment at the moment of birth, is replaced um, by the sucking of the thumb, as a kind of a repetitive gesture, which now is separated from the pleasure of nourishment and is associated with a pleasure of what might now loosely be called the sexual. During the oral stage, from birth to around
1: age one, we discover the world through our oral senses. It begins with breastfeeding and thumb sucking. When a child is weaned from breastfeeding, they move past the oral phase. However, according to Freud, if the child has weaned too soon, Or if there was trauma or neglect during this transition, this can result in an oral fixation, such as extended thumb sucking, chewing gum, or even smoking. After the oral phase, we pass through the anal phase. During this stage, we gain some control over our bowels and bladders. This is when children stop using diapers and learn to use a toilet. And as with the oral stage, if a child experiences trauma during this stage, it can impact a person's personality and behaviors later in life. After the anal stage comes the phallic stage. During this stage, Freud argues that children become aware of differences between the sexes, and they develop romantic attachments to their parents. Boys become attached to their mothers, and girls to their fathers. This is one of Freud's most famous ideas, the Oedipal Complex. Freud got the term from Sophocles' play, Oedipus Rex, in which the main character Oedipus unintentionally kills his father and marries his mother. After the phallic stage comes the latency stage. During this stage, children typically learn that their sexual desires towards their parents can't be realized, and these desires go away. Instead of wanting to be with their parents, they want to be their parents. Children begin to identify with the parent of the same sex and focus their energy on developing a sense of self. The final stage is puberty, or the genital stage. In this stage, the sexual drive is focused outside the family and towards viable sexual partners. This stage begins at puberty
0: and ends at death. What's so interesting about infant sexuality is that it doesn't presuppose yet a zone of the body, which in puberty, um, with a certain kind of normative incitement to a reproductive sexuality, sexuality becomes genitality. And what is not revolving around intergenital um, uh, pleasure is perverse. But Freud tells us, we are all perverts to a certain extent, because childhood is about a certain engagement of of erotic pleasure through the whole body, the rocking of the child, right? To put the child to sleep is itself erotic. There is no, not yet a certain kind of like distinctly sexual, at least not normatively so kind of pleasure. The point is to acknowledge these multiple um, uh, polymorphous uh, um, um, uh, erotogenic zones, that the body um, is itself, the palms, the sight, the, the kind of like lips, uh, themselves are sources of, of erotic pleasure. And it's not that we abandon them, he says. This is in a in um, third essay in the book. It's not that we abandon them. Foreplay is very much still about the engagement of all these uh, multiple erotogenic zones. But those who linger, he says, and I love this word, linger. It's a temporal deferment, right? Rather than go where you must and engage in the proper kind of thing, you linger and drive satisfaction from these other erotogenic zones, typically associated with infancy, become according to the normative kind of script, perverts, or engaged in perversions. In other words,
1: people who don't fully pass through each stage, the people who linger in the oral, anal, or phallic stage, develop perversions. But for Freud, these perversions are not abnormal. They're actually part of the normative experience. And by making that argument, Freud calls into question the entire distinction between the normal
0: and the perverse it's easy to remark how he does that. He says, whenever he talks about the normal, especially in the first part of the book, he says, what is seen to be the normal or what appears to be the normal. Um, and, or using perversion in I quotation marks. So here you have it again. Um, and I think this is very much a reaction against the mentality of the time that there is something called normal that has nothing to do with this other thing called perversion. Well, by blurring the boundaries between infant um, sexuality and and, and adult sexuality, um, between perversion and normality, you really come to show the complexities uh, and the unruliness of, of desire itself.
1: Let's talk now about what happened when this was published.
0: For one thing, it informed generations to come of psychoanalysis. And I would just mention two people here. Jacques Lacan, whose work went back to Freud and went back very centrally to Freud's work on sexuality, to try to understand the question with which we started. What is sexuality? and is there a set of distinct processes that we can call sexual? And Lacan reaches a very different kind of conclusion than Freud. For Lacan, the sexual ends up being a signifier. Uh, It is an organizing signifier, a signifier that creates a certain kind of order in our desires, uh, um, um, orientations, uh, this kind of quest for ourselves in the desire of the other. And Another important figure I would say is Wilhelm Reich, whose book um, in 1936, The Sexual Revolution, um, takes Freud's insights about sexuality and links them to a critique of capitalism, where he actually makes precisely the point that capitalism requires the forms of repression, reaction formations that Freud describes, precisely because it requires to produce and and securitize to a certain extent the patriarchal or Oedipal family as a condition for the maintain maintenance of its mode of production its industrial mode of production another set of influences um, and I'm looking here at my own uh, home discipline uh, social anthropology was um, to prompt questions uh, over the possible universality of the Oedipal. Is there something universal um, that Freud was describing? Precisely because Freud is not very explicit about this Um, when he talks about civilization. Well, what civilization? Human civilization, or are you talking about Western civilization? Or is this a very particular kind of argument? So you have people like Margaret Mead, for example, uh, in the interwar period in the U.S., who became a famous public anthropologist, uh, going to Samoa and studying adolescence and, and asking um, herself whether youth in Samoa undergo the same kind of sturm und drang, the same kind of turbulence in, in adolescence as, pe- as young people do in, in the U.S., um, and coming to the conclusion that that's not at all the case, that it is a cultural construction of adolescence that that um, uh, generates these paradoxes. Uh, a p- probably more complex work, um, it was done by Bronislav Malinovsky, um, uh, who was at LSE um, uh, at that time, uh, also in the interwar period, who went to the Trobriand Islands um, to look at whether or not the Oedipus Um, is something one encounters there. So you take a, presumably here, you take a very different culture than your own and you try to examine a certain kind of hypothesis. And what was interesting about the Trobriand Islands was that uh, uh, the Trobrianders were matrilineal and did not recognize the role of the father in sexual reproduction. Well, did not recognize, well, it's a different ontology of reproduction where spirits would... um, would uh, bring about the fertilization of reproduction. So in that context, the father did not necessarily play the central role that he would play in the Oedipal concept. Hence, there is no Oedipal concept. So there is a lot of this very interesting work. Much later though, um, I'm talking here 19... 70s and on. Um, I do think that this work, Freud's work, was very central to the production of what we come to know as queer theory, um, especially with the publication of Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality. Now, Foucault is very critical of psychoanalysis. He says that the whole stuff about repression is nonsense because what you see in modernity is not repression, is incitement to discourse. We should confess. I think there is a different understanding of repression here. But Foucault, like Freud, makes a very important move, an analytic move, a a move that has to do more with the aesthetic of his writing than with anything else. In order to understand why sexuality is so central to contemporary politics, Modes of subjecthood, etc., we need to decenter it. We need to let alone put a- aside those ideas that, you know, it is about how we have sex or what we desire and fantasize, it's about politics. Now, Freud already did something quite similar. By t- using contradictions, using ambivalence, using this kind of enervating um, uh, rhetorical. Uh, technologies to question whether or not there is something inherently sexual. And I think that a lot of the legacy um, of the book, um, I am, for example, teaching this book, um, um, and I think it's very important for students of sexuality to pay close attention to it because of. The importance of its insights and methodology to contemporary sexuality politics. More than ever, we need this kind of decentering of sexuality in a world in which both conservative politics and liberatory kind of claims to rights reinforce sexuality as an immutable identity, um, as almost like the core defining element of subjectivity, and puts in it um, uh, kind of like overburdens over it, as it were, with, um, with the radically transformative potentialities, whether for the good or the bad.
1: Freud's writing on sexuality also attempted to provide insight into how homosexuality develops. Since he believed in the separation of sexual drive and the sexual object, he saw homosexuality as a potential deviation from typical sexual development.
0: I think that unquestionably queer theory has emerged with a third, with a set from a set of very mundane practices, you know the under underground kind of clubs and bars and sex clubs, the back alleys in which a certain kind of queer culture or counterculture uh, was possible in a context of uh, you know we 're talking 50s, 60s uh, 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 heavy policing of of queer bodies, so the idea was that one had to embrace what Freud calls perversion as the source of life. How, by engaging in something allegedly perverse, can we imagine other kinds of, of worlds? Before the
1: 1990s, New York City was a place where these imagined worlds actually existed.
0: For example, the fact that people from Manhattan and from Brooklyn and from could, could mix together and engage in anonymous sex in a way in which class and race and, and uh, social standing mattered way less, if at all, in a context of, 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 of anonymous encounters, than it would in everyday life um, in the city. And the fact that these kind of encounters, this is just one example, one can give many probably from, from an archive, in, the mi- in a microcosm, entailed the potentiality of a different kind of world. In a world in which, Those sorts of differences and hierarchies will matter less, if at all. And and that, of course, has produced also communities of scholars, like that come to be known as queer queer theorists and so on, um, as alternative spaces in which one can think questions of, say, kinship, place, the city, um, um, the role of sexuality to issues of respectability and failure. In context in which academia itself had been normatively, as we know, uh, uh, heteropatriarchal. But what's interesting is that although it emerged around these debates, queer theory itself came to question the stability of sexuality. Now, here is a key key paradox of, of queer theory it emerges around certain set of seemingly mutable sexual identities, but it comes to realize that any kind of deep critical thought has to question the sexual as immutable and has to question identity um, as a mode of political um, organization or or expression, etc. And in doing that, queering you know, now queer theory is much more about the act of queering than about, you know, self-identifying necessarily queer queer people. Um, queering means troubling, upsetting, um, subverting the idea of this kind of stable thing that we might call sexuality. And in a way... Freud was already doing something like that already, and hence Freud is so central to many queer theorists um, uh, nowadays um, so this is this is just in a nutshell the the role of queer theory and queer community building I think that still echoes um, um, some of the um, things that f- Freud was doing
1: where are we at culturally? in our approach to sexuality, you know, what, what have we learned about this mysterious thing that is nature and nurture and, you know, politics and body,
0: um, you know, take us take us to where we are today. I think one thing that we're getting better at is the study of the normative um, and understanding a certain kind of understanding of why and how in late capitalism um, and the contemporary global order normativities are produced by uh, investment in something called sexuality and we have scholars and, and graduate students working all across the world paying attention to processes in which, uh, for example, the state tries to securitize the sexuality, the nativist sexuality of um, its citizens, you know, this kind of utopias. And you see this in ethno-nationalist movements across the world, you know, the foreigners bring us threatening sexuality. You know, if only we let foreign homosexuality in, Um, it's going to destroy our children. Or the reverse, a certain kind of queer liberalism that we see now in in the Netherlands, for example, or France, where if only these immigrants come with their conservative sexual um, uh, uh, practices, and the U.S., plenty, um, all the kind of like um, achievements we have acquired in sexual liberation uh, are going to be lost. So we have better and better... Conceptual tools to question this growing globalized centrality of sexuality as a category of belonging, citizenship, a uh, um, market, um, production, consumption. At the same time that we see a going reinvestment in the sphere of sexuality, um, uh, in in, in 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 politics and one worrisome one one trend that to me is a bit worrisome is that we're not just talking about conservative about radical right politics investing in this n- narrow understanding of sexuality, but growingly what is seen as um, as liberal left politics itself perpetuates this fetishization of sexuality and one then needs as a political act to go to a text like Freud, to go to queer theory and ask what kind of more, more encompassing, more radical politics and possibilities are thrown out the window by this commitment to a narrow notion of almost immutable um, sexuality, sexuality sexual identity.
1: At a time when the scientific community was looking to biology for all the answers, Freud focused instead on the external factors that shape a person's development. He plunged into the mysterious depths of the human psyche and laid the foundation for modern psychology. And by questioning the nature and development of sexuality, Freud opened up new ways of thinking about what is normal and what is perverse.
0: It has offered a certain kind of basis, a reassurance, for things such as um gay rights um uh, uh activism in um the early second half of the of the 20th century. This very simple idea that perversion is not isolated to types, but it is a condition of possibility and an inherent part of whatever comes to be called the normal. In other words, we're all perverts, this simple recognition worked to depathologize had the, has had the potential to depathologize um, um, um for example uh, same sex relations but the idea that there is no such thing as homosexuals and heterosexual but we're somehow all bisexual and there's a certain kind of continuum of more or less it's itself an attempt to denaturalize um, this kind of sexual typology that was influenced by um, the kind of questioning and troubling and, and um, unruly writing, if you will, of someone like Freud.
1: Brit Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Ritlarge is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.